the, um, if you're here for the first time and haven't filled out one of these cards, well, you wouldn't have because you're here for the first time. If you're here for like a second or third time and you hadn't filled out a card yet, this would apply to you as well. Please fill out one of these cards. It gives us a record of your visit. It gives us a chance to at least connect you to information. I promise, I promise you we won't uh, inundate you with anything, but we want to at least give you access to how you can sort of connect to our conversation as a church family. And uh, you can also uh, get some information about how to ask questions or, you know, who to ask the right questions to. So uh, do that for you, for us if you would. And two, I want to have something, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I'd like for our life group shepherds and deacons to stand, please. Life group shepherds and deacons, they're not synonymous, but they're pretty close. Nearly all of our deacons or life group shepherds are the other way around, but not absolutely. And I wanted you guys to stand because I wanted our visitors or those who are visiting with us for the first of a few times to see who these people are. So if you want to ask some questions, you can ask them. You may be sitting next to or near someone that you can ask, hey, where does this happen? Or tell me about life groups. You may actually have one of these guys invite you to their life group if you haven't been invited yet. That's uh, something that is, is very important to us as a church family. And these men lead very well in those capacities. So I invite you to connect to them this morning. If not this morning, then soon. Thank you. Y'all can sit. Appreciate that. Let me uh, start with prayer, and then we'll climb into our message. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, a few things we want to do. First, uh, we want to lift up another church family. I want to pray for C3 and Rowlett. I want to pray for Shane, Daniel, and Nick, uh, the guys that are eldering, pastoring this church in Rowlett. Uh, We have um, an affection for this church. We know some of these folks. We are burdened for your work there in and through them. Lord, we pray that they are being faithful to be salty, bright, and aromatic in their context in Rowlett. God, we pray that they are being faithful to be the church. I pray that they are not... Um, distracted with things that you haven't put in front of them and called them to, but that they are squarely in your will, walking in your will, equipping the saints for the work of service. Um, God, I pray that, that these guys that are leading, that their families are flourishing as they lead, that their families get their first and their best, and that their wives, they're not strangers to their wives and children because they're so involved in pastoring the church, but that they pastor their church through pastoring their families first. Lord, I pray for our connection to this church, uh, C3, that if it's just a prayer and encouragement and um, that type of relationship, that we'll be faithful in that. But if we are to be partners in some capacity, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into that, uh, how, how we should go about that. Uh, God, this morning, also want to pray for how we spend these next few minutes. I'm so delighted with where we are in Hebrews. You have given us such treasure Um, that we have to act on now. We get to act on. And I'm thankful that you've given us some very clear instructions here in this last chapter of how to move in response to what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that this morning will be um, equipping. I pray that it will be refining. I pray that it will help us um, understand the part that we have to play in each other's lives and how important all that is. We turn this time over to you, Lord, and we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, please. 
We are in the last chapter of Hebrews and in the home stretch, really. And Hebrews has been interesting. Uh, if you've been with us on this journey, you know that it is, has been up to, I would say, the end of chapter 10 has just been one chapter after another full of these rich theological truths that you can get your hands around and really enjoy these realities of what we have in Christ, of who he is as the better and perfect and final high priest who's offered the perfect sacrifice of himself and who has perfected the mind and hearts of the worshipers. Just a wonderful theological truths. Um, here we are in chapter 13, sort of making a shift Toward the end of chapter 12, we would call that, we didn't, we didn't say it these last few weeks, but our, the guys that I study that have given their lives to studying Hebrews especially believe that the end of chapter 12 is sort of the climax of the, of the sermon, uh, the sermon that is Hebrews. And that chapter 13, some people have believed that chapter 13 is even uh, something that the, that the preacher added later, like an appendix, because it's just sort of a series of commands they seem to have an integrity for me because it seems to me this exposition of the first 12 chapters of what Christ is and who he is and what we have in him and this host of witnesses that we have in the stands in chapter 11 and then in chapter 13, here's how we respond. It seems to have a beautiful connection, a beautiful fit, but the chapter is full of what uh, in, in Greek are called imperatives. Imperatives are what we would call commands. If we were to put, um, to sort of contextualize it, this chapter would have a lot of exclamation points in it. Now, our Bibles don't have many of those. But if we were to capture the Greek mood here, it would be full of exclamation points. Here are some of those imperatives. And you don't have, this is just kind of for context. If you're a real note taker, you can obviously take these notes, but this is not the focus of the morning. Verse 1, this must continue. We're going to look at this in a moment. Verse 2, do not neglect. Verse 3, continue to remember. Verse 7, continue to remember. Verse 9, don't be carried away. Verse 16, do not neglect. Verse 17, continue to obey. Verse 17, submit. Verse 18, continue to pray. This chapter is saturated with what we would call, what we should call, commands. In light of who Christ is and what he's done, these are appropriate commands and appropriate responses. Here are a few more. These are participles, but they have sort of an imperative-type tone. Verse 4, it must be respected. Verse 4, it must be undefiled, speaking of marriage. Verse 5, it must be free from the love of money, life. Also in verse 5, be content with what you have. These are commands. It's a wonderful shift. Contextually, you could summarize the sermon in where we've gone so far and where we are this morning by saying, in light of the greatness of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us as high priest, in light of 10 chapters of exposition of who he is, and in light of a chapter full of the stands being full of a host of witnesses in chapter 11, Chapter 12, continue running the race well. And in verse 13, while you do these essential things. If you wanted in just one sentence, summarize where we are and summarize the book. In light of the greatness of Christ, our high priest, 
and in light of the great host of witnesses that surrounds us, continue running the race well while doing these essential things. This morning and for the rest of Hebrews, we're going to be considering these essential things. And this morning, there's just three of them. And they just fall right out of the first three verses. So that's all we're going to be looking at this morning is the first three verses. I'll read those. And if you're making an outline or you need a sort of a map, a mental map for where we're going, the first point's from verse 1. The second point's from verse 2. The third point is from verse 3. Okay? Easy. Lob. This is going to be a lob this morning, so that's going to be fun. All right. Let let me read our passage and then we'll climb in. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. The word here for brotherly love is, if you don't have to be real creative to know that the, the Greek word there is the word Philadelphia. It's a city that we're familiar with. It deals with the quality of love that the Christian family, the church family, should have together. The quality of love that binds them together. Now, in ordinary Greek usage, it had the, the, the meaning of the actual love that a a physical blood brother and sister or blood brother and brother, whoever family member, had for one another. So in their context, this was a new and unique idea. For people who weren't blood brother and sister to consider each other having the kind of love for each other, this was very different and very unique. The idea likely came from some of Christ's teaching. It obviously did, but here are some of those connections. Matthew chapter 23, I'm just going to share with you. You don't have to turn there. Jesus taught his disciples. He said, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. Listen to what he says next. And you are all brothers. Okay, just conceptualize this for a minute. I want you to get this. This is some of the earliest teachings on considering people that believe the way you do, as your brother. So I'm just envisioning Andrew and Peter and James and John hearing this teaching and kind of turning to each other and going, brother, you want me to love this guy and to think of this guy like he's my brother? I mean, we all kind of left our professions to go follow you, Jesus, but I mean, I have a brother. Now for James and John, that's easy because they're brothers, sons of Zebedee. But for the others to really start to think of themselves as brothers. I also thought, too, this is probably where they first started calling each other brother. Whenever we were first called here 12 years ago, we were, uh, before Crosspoint happened, we were Bethel Baptist Church, a very traditional um, ch- church here in our town, had been around forever. And there were some folks here that were part of that church that we sort of inherited as we became a new church. And they all called me Bro Ben. Bro Ben. We're not even going to bother with brother. It was Bro Ben. Bro Ben. And uh, I laughed about that. I still laugh about that. But I was thinking about this Bro Peter, Bro Andrew, Bro James, Bro John. This is where that idea first came from here, where Jesus is telling them, You guys are bros. What a cool concept. And I, 
I, please don't call me bro Ben. It's sort of weird, but, but you could. In light of this morning's message, you could. Okay, you could call me brother Ben or, or just Ben. Now, one of the additional things that I was thinking about here, you know, this, this first teaching, you are all brothers, would also connect with some other concepts that Jesus taught, a familiar passage to us in John chapter 13. Listen to this passage. A new commandment I give you. This is shared on the, the evening of the Lord's Supper, the night that Jesus was arrested. He's sharing with his, with his followers, the ones he's told over there in Matthew, you guys are brothers, and here's what he's saying to him: A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, this kind of love that you have for each other as brothers, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this directive that you guys are all brothers connects with this sort of teaching and we realize that this Philadelphia, this mindset of brotherly love was built into the early Christian fabric starting with the disciples. And it expanded the traditional view of love for blood family to love for covenant family. This is where that all began. Now, I'm going to introduce you to somebody this morning that is going to share some, some insights with us. He was an ancient satirist. That's from like satire, the type of genre that someone would write, satire. His name was Lucian of Samosota. He was from Samosota. We don't know where he lived at the time that he's writing. He wrote 70-something works. But he was known for being witty and for having a scoffing nature. That's what satire is. If you want to sort of connect to what this guy would be now, he would be like Sasha Cohen, as in Borat-type Sasha Cohen. He would be like Sarah Silverman. Okay, this guy would be like Seth MacFarlane. He's not a Christian. Okay, we're going to hear some testimony from this guy about Christians. He would be like a contemporary John Stewart or an ancient version of John Stewart. And this guy, Lucian of Samosota, wrote about the Christians as he viewed them, witnessed them in the second century Roman Empire. We don't know again, we know where he lived, but he had a front row seat apparently to how some Christians moved. So we're going to hear a little commentary from him now and a little bit later in the morning. But here's what he said about Christians as he, a guy that is by nature scoffing making fun of people. Uh, Satire, I thought, just to share with you, is a genre of literature in which vices, follies, uh, abuses, and shortcomings are held up to ridicule. So this guy is going to be, by nature, making fun of people. Here's what he says about Christians in 2nd century Roman Empire. He says, their original lawgiver persuaded them that they should be like brothers To one another. Huh. Therefore, they despise all things equally and view them as common property, accepting such teachings by tradition and without any precise belief. So he's saying here apparently they love each other like they're real family members, and on top of that, they have everything in common. 
They're not just about collecting stuff. They're about sharing stuff. This guy, Lucian, an educated guy, a, a guy that his profession is given to making fun of people, is puzzled at the kind of closeness that he sees in the early Christian church, the kinship that he sees between non-blood brothers and sisters. The expansion of love for brothers, this Philadelphia, being expanded from, from family members, blood family members, to include men and women beyond the immediate family was ludicrous. Let that hit you for a minute. Until the church showed up. Let that hit you. Just let that sit on you for a minute. Until the church showed up, the Greek concept, the Roman Empire is looking at this going, this is weird. We've never seen anything even like this. Now, as for the encouragement, we're going to hear from Lucian again later in the morning. The New American Standard uses this or phrases this passage, this first passage in chapter 13, let love of the brethren continue. I don't know why I like that one better because it seems to sort of set out the imperative here. The, the imperative here is not love your brothers. The imperative here is continue loving the brothers. I had to ask myself the question. I think we should all ask the question this morning. Why this encouragement? Why is it necessary to even say this? Isn't something this something that would come naturally? Well, maybe it's important to say this to the Hebrew church. Maybe it's important for saints for 2,000 years to consider this passage. Maybe because loving the brethren isn't always easy. And continuing to love the brethren is all the more hard. Anybody's lovable for a season, frankly. And, man, I see it all the time. Folks that will just step into your life long enough until the honeymoon is over and they really get to know you and then they're gone to the next little relationship. And it could be the next church. Man, anybody's lovable for a season. But it's sticking with people, continuing with people where you realize the imperative here is to continue. That's the command that we need to hear. Brotherly love is easy in spurts or seasons. But for the long haul, it's hard. It's hard to love Drama Queen Donna. Okay. It's really hard to love difficult Danny. All right, I just gave up these names. You know, none of them, there are names that I couldn't think of that we actually have in our church family. But these are people that I know, and if you're sticking around a church family long enough, you're going to know them as well. Drama Queen Donna, difficult Danny. There's Critical Carl. That never really has a good thing to say, and he just sort of armchair quarterback every armchair quarterbacks every single thing that you do. Critical Carl, you got to love him. You got to continue loving old Critical Carl. There's Brash Brian, and there are some kids. Brian, I'm not talking about y'all. Brian Jones. Let's see, one one of my students. He's like, he's like, man, I hope you're not talking about me. There's Brash Brian. There's Fragile Fanny. That you just cannot say anything without hurting fragile Fanny's feelings. Like every sermon is like, uh, you were talking to me. No, I wasn't. I swear it wasn't to you. There are other people like uncouth Jeff Ott. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
and there's even Paul Asterman. If you stick around long enough, you get to know, you get to know Paul Asterman, and man, you're like, wow, let love continue. That's not easy. It's not easy sticking with God's people for the long haul because everybody's normal until you get to know them. And everybody's lovable for a season until you really start spending some time with them and you realize, man, this is hard. Turn to 1 John. I only have a few places for y'all to go this morning, and this is one of probably four places. 1 John chapter 3. I want you to look at this passage. 1 John has a lot to say about love, and it really puts some things in perspective. 1 John 3.16, this passage is easy to remember because John 3.16 is a well-known passage. This one is a, easy go -to, or a nice go-to passage to connect to what we're talking about this morning. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Beautiful concept that's connecting this brotherly kind of love that we should have for each other, and it's connecting it to the expense involved. Loving the brothers and continuing to love the brothers will be, is expensive. It's not easy, and you shouldn't expect ease. If you say, man, some people are just really hard, or I have a difficult time, or that's not my personality, or then I understand every single bit of that. But it's not easy for anyone to go the distance with God's people. But look how important it is. Chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. This is how important love for the brothers is. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother, he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We are talking about church family members. We're talking about people that we can see. We're talking about people that have these profiles, drama queen, difficult, critical, fragile, brash, uncouth, all of those things and everything in between. The people that we can see are the ones that we've been called to love as he's loved us. Love for the brothers is what's being encouraged right here. For years, I've struggled with the question, is the church mainly to be inwardly focused or outwardly focused? And is there a problem leaning in one direction or the other? We've asked this question over the course of our 12 years, nearly 12 years here in different sermon series and different places where we've been in God's Word. If you're in a context in a community that's surrounded by need physical need of people that have real needs, it would seem that a church should be very attentive to this. I would not for a moment want to disagree with that. We could hand out food. We could provide clothing. We could have, have benevolence efforts. We could all the, have all these things for these people in need, and that may be a way that we could be salty, bright, and aromatic in our context. Or, I want you to consider this, we could focus more not totally, but more on doing a great job of loving one another. 
of having everything in common with each other so that the Lucians go, what in the world is going on right there? We could focus more on doing a great job of loving one another so that the needy around us see what life is like being part of God's people. Now that is a totally different approach to being salty, bright, and aromatic. In some ways, it's like loving the lost by loving the found well. It's like being outwardly focused by being inwardly attentive. We see passages in our Bible that lean this direction. Galatians 6.10, so then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone. We didn't say absolutely. To everyone we do good, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our brothers, we should love each other especially, especially well. Considering the passage I just read a few minutes ago from John chapter 13, where Jesus is talking about this new commandment he's giving his, his disciples. He's told them, you're brothers and love one another just as I've loved you. By this kind of love that you have for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. There's this evangelistic impact if the church is loving one another well. Turn to John chapter 17. This is the second of... Four or five places I want you to turn this morning. John chapter 17 has been such a ministry to us over the life of our church since we've climbed through it when we were in John. It's the high priestly prayer. He's praying it on the eve of his arrest. And man, it is chock full of some treats. And for us, it, was, it, it, it introduced us to sort of a philosophical shift Listen to this passage in chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and now he's also praying for us. He's been praying for his disciples up to this point, but in verse 20, he starts praying for us. I do not ask for these only, these disciples that are sitting at my table right now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. Jesus is praying for you 2,000 years ago, and here's what he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world may believe that Jesus is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is praying here on the eve of his arrest, Before he goes to the cross, Father, I'm praying that they will be in one another. They will be so much a part of each other's lives that the world will know that you sent me. That they are so profound, the love that they have for each other. So profound, the involvement that they have in each other's lives. This oneness that the world will know that Jesus is the Son of God. How profound is that? Loving the lost world by enjoying and loving one another well. This encouragement here in chapter 13 is let love for the brotherhood continue. The second thing from this passage, if you want to turn back to Hebrews, if you've left that place, we're going back to or going to the second verse here for the second point of the morning. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 
The first thing that we've been encouraged with this morning is that brotherly love is to continue. The second thing we can learn this morning is that love is hospitable. The Greek word here is philozenia. It's a nice counterpart to Philadelphia. Love for the brothers is love for strangers. Philozenia. The word means actually contextually from my commentator, one of my favorite commentators. He said this. It means to delight in the guest host relationship. To delight in it and to have this mutual exchange of unanticipated gifts that brings refreshment to one another. He gives it, he calls it this, this uh, philoxenia, if it's done well, that it has almost, has almost a sacramental quality to it, that you're expecting to hear and interact with God through hosting and through being a visitor, through, through this philoxenia applied. And it's more of an attitude than an action, but it's an attitude that compels action. Now, the strangers, let's take a moment and consider the strangers. The context here, in light of verse 1, in light of the rest of Hebrews, and in light of the rest of the New Testament, has to do with Christian strangers specifically. Not absolutely, but specifically in this context, we're dealing with Christian strangers. Philoxenia has to do with love for Christian strangers. Strangers. Romans 12 is the only other place in the New Testament that uses the same word. The passage says this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality to those saints. I seek to show philoxenia to those saints. What's being encouraged in this passage is really part two of loving the brothers. The second one, the part of that is love brothers that you don't know that are passing through. And the third is loving brothers who are in prison. Loving brothers that are just passing through. See, the Motel 6s in those days were some pretty sordid places. Pretty dangerous places in the Roman Empire. And Christians did not stay in those places. They stayed with other Christians. And since Christian churches were in homes, the home became the center of hospitality. Now, there's an, a, a connection here to angels, and this, this gets a, probably far more airtime than it should. It's referring to a passage in Genesis chapter 18. Let's look back at that. This is the fourth of, I think, five places I have you go this morning. Yeah, something like that. Genesis chapter 18. We don't really have to go here, but it's such a great story. He's such a great model of hospitality. Why wouldn't we look at our, our forefather that we share, Father Abraham? Okay, so let's just look at this. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Okay, Abraham just hanging out in the shade when it's hot. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. As far as he knows, and from our early writings that are are commenting on this event, as far as Abraham knows, three strangers walk up. And they look like men, just people that he doesn't know. He's hanging out the door of his tent. Three strangers walk up. When he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Now, down in my ESV, well, in that verse in the ESV, O Lord is capitalized, but there's also a little note down in the bottom that says, My Lord, with a lowercase l. And that's probably what's going on there. He doesn't know that this is Jesus, apparently, or God the, God the Holy Son. It's probably God the Son. It's confusing right there, all right? The Lord shows up with two angels. And we don't know if it's Jesus or not, if it's a caveat, uh, you know, event or what. Cameo, not a caveat. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. As far as Abraham knows, these are strangers, it appears. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three seas of flour, of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Abraham is looking more like a waiter here than the guy that owns the property and owns the goods, standing around like a waiter, tending to these people that, as of this point, it appears they're just men. The early writings and early commentaries about this event point toward verse 9 and onward being the point where Abraham figures out, okay, these are more than men because they're giving me a message that tells me they're more than men. He's a great example of a host ministering to, as far as he knows, angels unawares. Now, this is not necessarily saying that we should expect all visiting strangers to your home or to our church to be angels. That's sort of weird to even think about. But we should, and the Hebrews church should, expect that some of their visitors will be messengers of God, bringing them more blessing than they give in their hospitality. Now, I want to address something that sort of connected to the first point as well. There's a preference here to Christian strangers. And if you're reading this passage, you might think this has sort of been pushed onto the passage. What you should realize is just like this idea of brotherly love, where we're talking about people that are non-blood family members loving each other like that is new. What was also new in that time was this concept and an ethic that's being developed of a visiting Christian stranger. It was so developed, in fact, that the first catechism called the Didache had a whole standard of what to expect from the Christian visitor. If they stay more than three days, kick them out. They're a false prophet. If they want money when they leave, kick them out because they're a false prophet. I mean, they had a very developed view of the Christian stranger here. What I want you to appreciate and understand is what we're talking about here, what appears contextually, is we're dealing with Christian strangers especially, and I want you to know I understand if that troubles you a little bit. I understand if a little bit on the inside you're feeling like, well, shouldn't I love lost people more than I love found people? And shouldn't I give preference to strangers over Christian strangers? Because they've already found Jesus after all. I want you to consider this. 
What kind of father would a man be if he spent his life caring for the homeless while at home his wife and children were in rags and destitute and never saw their father? What kind of father would you consider him to be? What kind of man would you consider him to be? Hopefully, at least you would consider that his ministry is wildly imbalanced. Consider this for a minute. What kind of pastor would I be if I spent myself on y'all and my wife and children never saw me? What kind of pastor would I be if I was always tending to every need within our body and yet Christy and the kids got nothing from me? I would probably be a divorce pastor, for one. Or my children would have no use for faith. But I might be the hero of Crosspoint Fellowship, just like this guy tending to the homeless might be the hero of the homeless. I want you to understand that sort of perspective and sort of balance. Balance is important to ministry, and the scales should tip noticeably in the direction of God's people first. That is not unchristian, that is Christianity at its best. In fact, it's what it means to be Christian, that we love each other so well, that we tend to each other so well, the Christian stranger, that it becomes an attractant. The people that don't know the Lord at all see how the church is the church, and people like Lucian are saying, man, that's weird, but it's cool. I've never seen anything like it, and I want to be part of it evangelism being the church being the church think about that for a minute evangelism via the church being the church benevolence via the church being the church now how might this play out for us there's no real christian travelers in our day people are going to stay at a real motel six or a comfort in or whatever. They're not going to be, hey, call are there any Christians around there I can come stay with? That doesn't really work well in our context, so we don't have to go directly to that, but the principle can play out for us. And I think our version may be those who visit our den and family room each week. Some, some of these folks that are here with us this morning or have been with us for the first of a few mornings, you are our Christian stranger. Don't, I, that word makes it feel real different and real and to alienate you, but I think you are our contemporary version of what we're talking about here. And what would it be like if the visitors didn't leave without, first of all, a hearty welcome? That's a given. But how about also an invitation to dine on some delicious food? Molina's is right there, and it's a muy bueno. It's really good. Their sauce is amazing. And we always use, well, we don't always. We usually get out before the other churches, so you, you don't even have to wait. You just go right in there. Imagine what it would be like if a visitor never left without an invitation to lunch. And what it would be like if the inviter, as a church member, a church family member across point, paid for lunch. Remember, we were talking about it being expensive to love each other well. We're not talking about, hey, I want to turn in a receipt to Aaron and do some reimbursable stuff. I'm talking about you pay for it. I'm talking about you actually pay for it. About an expense that you take on maybe once a month where you say, all right, once a month, I want to take a visiting family or a family that I don't know to lunch. 
because they're, contem- they're, they're, they're contemporary strangers to me, Christian strangers that I want to make friends, and I'm going to be expensive, and I'm going to, or I'm going to walk in something, even though it might be a little bit expensive, and take them to lunch. If we did that, man, if we only had one opportunity with a visiting family, then they would leave here overwhelmed with hospitality. They would leave here with philoxenia, having walked in philoxenia. And even if they landed at another church, they would know, hey, this sister church here in town, Cross Point Fellowship, they love the stranger. Another way that we could walk in this would be to have families we don't know into our homes. The home, you remember, is the sweet spot for hospitality. It's where we get to reflect God's character in a very personal and real and daily and interactive way. They get to see how God's faith, how, God's, how our relationship with God plays out in our home. Here I think Philozenia wears an apron as he or she, he can wear an apron too, is tending to lunch for some visitors. Here Philozenia sits around some homemade grub, red beans and rice, maybe even some gumbo if you're really blessed. Philozenia, I think, lets the stranger drink from dad's favorite coffee mug and makes the stranger feel at home. We are hospitable with others as God has been hospitable with us. That's what fuels the church, to be hospitable toward the Christian stranger. It's what God's people do. It is fundamental to a quality, or what is fundamental to a quality ministry to strangers is a group of people who see themselves first or at first as visitors of God. The third thing this morning from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The third thing this morning is that love remembers the imprisoned and mistreated. This passage here is dealing with those who have been imprisoned for their faith. And apparently this church was really, really good at it at one time. In fact, the end of chapter 10, he encourages them to go back to how they used to be. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Apparently, at one time, they were very good at caring for the prisoner, but maybe identification with those folks made life really difficult for them, and they were growing cold in that ministry. But Lucian gives us account of someone who is doing it well in the second century A.D. I can only hope that it's in Rome and it's this church because they responded to the preaching of the Hebrews preacher. But here's more um, testimony from Lucian. In the death of Peregrinus, this writing that I've read from before is, is entitled The Death of Peregrinus and has to do with a guy that was actually, um, he professed faith in Christ. He was imprisoned for that. He was ministered to by the church, and he proved later to be a big fake. And he actually martyred himself, for not Christian martyrdom, um, at, at, at the Colosseum at an event, set himself on fire. It's a crazy story. But listen to what Lucian says about how the church moved around this guy before he proved to be a fake. This is at the point where he's confessing 
from all indications, he's a believer and he's been imprisoned. This is what Lucian says about the Christians. He says, The Christians left no stone unturned in their endeavor to procure his release. And when this proved impossible, they looked after his wants in all other matters with untiring solicitude and devotion. From early, remember, this is a, a satirist. Remember, this guy has made his life and his calling, his profession of making fun of people. And listen to what Lucian is saying about the church. From the earliest dawn, old women and orphan children might be seen waiting about the prison doors. While the officers of the church, by bribing the jailers, were able to spend the night inside with him. Meals were brought in and they went through their sacred formulas. A satirist is blown away when the church is the church. What a cool opportunity we have with this philosophical shift to be a church that loves each other well, that is a Philoxenia kind of church that is, that is doing hospitality well and a church that's caring for those who are suffering well. The spirit of this, I think, can be applied as well, though none of us have been in prison for our faith. It can be implied in ministry to others who are suffering mistreatment for their faith. Some of you are believers in families of unbelievers. And some of those unbelievers can be pretty harmful and their criticism can be pretty relentless. So we can come alongside the mistreated and we can minister to the mistreated. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the church being the church. Now, we're going to land in Matthew 25. Turn there. I want you to turn there. I want you to see this passage. Matthew 25. What a great place to land. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. Ears should perk up. We should be like, okay, I want to hear what Jesus is saying about the final judgment. Because this, this is something that really matters. Right? Is everybody with me? Everybody turn there? Is everybody realizing the gravity of what Jesus is about to tell them and what he's about to tell us through the word? This is what's going on at the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Familiar passage. Hopefully it's familiar to you. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for you were able to explain propitiation. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for you can explain the Trinity 
without using the stupid egg thing. So come on into heaven. It's going to be awesome. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For you, you usually went to church unless you were really tired. You were always, almost always there. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, and you didn't cuss. So come on in. Man, I'm doing all that for a purpose because I want you to see what it really says, what it says next. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you exercised phylloxenia, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and exercise phylloxenia and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you suffering? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, let me show you something. <laughs> I've been reading this passage ever since I was little. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, it's probably a very familiar passage to you. It's probably something that's compelled you to minister to strangers or those in prison or those that have a need, any need. And it should but let me, let, let me help you with refining it a little bit. I've always read this passage before just this morning, in fact. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, comma, my brothers, you've done it to me. You understand what, what the difference is and what it actually says there and what I just said? Whenever you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, the least of these, my brothers, y'all, it's like saying, y'all, you've done it to me. That's not what's being said here. I'm scrambling in my office before I came out here this morning, going to my good commentaries, looking at the original text and making, trying to make sense of this, realizing he's saying, when you've done it to the least of my brothers, I just told you the chapter before, who's your brother? It's y'all. And when you've done this kind of stuff for y'all, that's the judgment question. That's what I'm going to be looking at in judgment. Not whether you could under, understand propitiation, although you should. If you don't, look it up. Whether or not you can explain the Trinity without the egg thing, I hope you give it a shot. It's the lamest illustration in the world. But how you loved each other is apparently going to be one of the first questions that he considers in judgment. How you love the brothers. That's what this passage is saying here. I'm talking about a complete 
philosophical shift for you because you may have always wrestled with this tension. How do we deal with poor people? How do we deal with needy people? How do we deal with the clothed? How do we deal with the imprisoned? Aren't we supposed to have an eye for them? Absolutely. But you better have an especial eye for your brothers and sisters. That's how you engage a lost world, by being the church, by loving each other like blood brothers and sisters, although that is hard at times. It's a great tutor of how we should love one another, sticking with each other for the distance, loving each other, the strangers that making the point to work beyond maybe your personality differences to where you love each other, you get to know each other, you find strangers and you make them friends because that's what God's done for us in, in the gospel. And then loving the mistreated because it's what we do. Loving the imprisoned for their faith. Loving those who are being mistreated for their faith in some way. It's what we do with the brothers. Man, that's a total philosophical shift. I don't, for a moment, want to discourage you from thinking about being part of a fish ministry, for example, a ministry that gives food to people that are hungry. That is a great ministry. Some of the things that I know that people are part of, water for people that don't have water, absolutely, that's awesomeness, greatness. But if you're doing those things, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, people that are the most zealous about those things have no use for the people of God. Not always, oftentimes. It's at the expense of the love for the brothers. But man, I want you to see a shift this morning. If that's you, see that the real cream is to love God's people well. That's how we become a city on a hill. That's how we become an attractant to Greenville and our surrounding area, where people look at that church and say, man, there's something going. Lucians look at it and say, something's going on there. I can't even make fun of it. I just marvel at it because I've never seen anything like it. Man, what a great, great truth for us to consider this morning. We're going to have our supper from John chapter 13. I think it beautifully illustrates all three of these points from this morning. If you'd like to turn there, you can. It is in the context of the Lord's Supper. The details are not shared in the book of John of the supper itself, just the meal context. And there are about five chapters that cover it. Chapter 13 all the way through the end of 17 is all in that context of the Lord's Supper. So if you ever want to read about the Lord's Supper, you can go here and you won't find the details of the supper, but you can find the details of the conversation. It's a wonderfully helpful section exposing what they talked about on the night of his arrest. Listen to what happens here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash dirty, nasty feet 
He began to wash proud Peter's feet, doubting Thomas's feet, brown-nosed James and John. Can I sit on your left and your right? Mommy, can you go talk to Jesus about this? Those are the feet he's washing. Let that hit you for a minute. He washed the disciples' feet and he wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I was thinking on this encounter and this supper context and what takes place in this conversation. What Jesus talks about and what he does, what he says, and what, unf- what unfolds in the next day beautifully illustrate these three admonitions from Hebrews. Beautifully, for brotherly love is on display. An expensive brotherly love. A love so profound that he will die for his friends. A love that's expensive, not just with words, but with action. And here, too, on display is hospitality at its finest. Jesus looks like a new and better Abraham, breaking the bread, feeding the strangers made brothers, and even washing their feet like a servant. I had a tough time thinking on the third thing, the imprisonment hold, that whole caring for those in prison situation, then I realized that his love, too, is on display in what he does the very next day in setting a bunch of prisoners free. Man, he indeed loves the prisoner and the mistreated, for he went to the cross to accomplish a release. And the supper is our weekly opportunity to remember the impetus for our love for one another is because of his love for us. Blessed are we if we actually do it. Let's distribute the elements.